sometimes when I'm just walking down here from from our little house there and just kind of being with the beauty and the expansiveness you know the feeling is just so complete and wonderful and mysterious I was just feeling that now I just kind of have to say it it's so hard to come and like talk a lot of words as if somehow the, the words are trying to point to something that is so ineffable and so it just sometimes it seems to me like a real dichotomy so I'm actually saying this to get myself used to words so I can start talking about this talk tonight <laughs> what I want to speak about is hopefully hopefully this is going to be of practical help in uh, developing and noticing the expanded quality of awareness, of mindfulness, that's what's really important to us when we leave here in our daily activities, when we're involved in the world of action, of choice, of decisions, of so much coming at us. One of the questions that comes up a lot is how does this you know, precision with the breath and this being in such quietness, how is that going to transfer? How is that going to help us? So I want to, of course that helps us, but it's not the whole picture. So there's some corollary aspects to mindfulness that we've been alluding to, of course. They're not, this isn't going to be new information, but I want to bring it out more clearly because it helps to give conscious attention to these areas in our daily life. In fact, it's what makes this practice really deepen and and begin to send its tendrils throughout all of our activities. So, as is fortunate in Theravada Buddhism, everything's broken down into lists and nice, convenient ways of talking about it. It's actually very helpful for remembering, because it was an oral tradition, it said, for 500 years. So it seems like that was a helpful way for people to remember And so this um, corollary to mindfulness, which is bare attention, that's what we've been talking about, nonviolent, open, accepting, clear attention, and concentration, which is that steadiness of mind that connects. The corollary to mindfulness, the adjunct, they go together, translates usually as clear comprehension. And mostly, as the Buddha is talking about mindfulness, he would always talk about mindfulness and clear comprehension. They go together. So clear comprehension in the various ways I'll just point to it, it's basically about expanding out of the microscopic experience, not abandoning that, but expanding out of it to uh, the whole context within which we are speaking, acting, being, relating. And at first, um, it doesn't always feel like mindfulness because we're used to that microscopic concentrated form and when you leave here one thing we don't guarantee much but one thing I can guarantee is over time after you leave here that microscopic clarity and concentration will go that's one of the few things (laughs) we can guarantee so if that's what we're thinking of as what mindfulness is and the only way for wisdom to arise in our life, then we're going to be really frustrated and disappointed. So 
I just want that's an important piece. It's not the whole piece. But even so, we never abandon this piece of the clear seeing, the mindfulness. <clears throat> so the first aspect of this clear comprehension coming into the world of action, of speech, of choices, and this we've spoken of, but I want to highlight it, is beginning to pay very conscious attention to the experience of our intentions in our speech, in our action. I, I can't express enough how vital to transformation in our life awareness, attention to intentions can be. It's absolutely crucial. It can change the whole way we relate to our lives. So as, as Joseph has said often, intention is the seed through which an action has the results, the karmic results for ourselves of being either wholesome, leading to freedom from suffering, to happiness, to peace, or unwholesome, bringing more suffering on ourselves. But there's a paradox when we talk about this and we uh, look at the way we've been practicing here on retreat where we say sit or walk, be fully present with whatever arises, wholesome, unwholesome, love, mindfulness, rage, murderous rage, self-hatred, anxiety, fear, joy, they're all the same. Be with them, open to them, don't try to change them. And that's sort of what we're saying. Watch every thought come and go. No thought is more important than any other. It's pretty natural out of this the questions come up of, well, how do you act? I mean, how do you make any choice? What about social activism? What about affecting change in the world if this is the attitude we bring to every experience? So on one side... That's the attitude of wisdom. As Joseph said last night, there's the two sides, wisdom and compassion. That's the wisdom of really seeing the emptiness of things. Where these arising states of mind, especially these mental states, where they do make a huge difference, where they do start to matter, is when a mental state, a mental factor is arising that brings about and forms an intention to speak or act. So a thought of anger can come and go. A thought of anger can come and give rise to the intention, I'm really going to let that so-and-so have it. You know, and you can say it, and then you can actually go and do it. And so that's more than a passing thought. It's turned into an action. It's been the intention for an action that could bring uh, suffering both to ourselves and another person. So we have this paradox of nothing matters and every intention that arises in our heart and mind matters totally in that moment. There's a saying that I find beautiful from Padmasambhava, who is sort of the founder of Tibetan Buddhism, we could say. And he says, uh, expresses this paradox. It's as though my view is as spacious as the sky. My actions and my respect for cause and effect are as fine as grains of barley flour. How to hold both of those, a view as spacious as the sky, non-judging, non-grasping, non-clinging, and at the same time, such an attention, such a respect 
for the intentions leading to action and a respect for the consequences of acting either from wholesome or from unwholesome motivations. If we didn't have the spacious view, it would be easy to get either incredibly judgmental with ourselves and our intentions aren't so hot, or to kind of fall into a sort of like a a fear of hell or something, you know, if I I did too many bad things, I'm going to go to hell. Well, I mean, if you read some some of the Tibetan um, texts, they talk very graphically in those terms. But it doesn't have to be this kind of dread of panic, but a real respect that if we act in ways that are from anger, from fear, from hatred, from greed, from delusion, somewhere those results are going to manifest in our own heart and mind, if not outwardly. And so this willingness, uh, ability, interest to bring mindfulness to intention is the crucial point where we actually have a choice, where we can affect change in the way we are in the world, in our actions, and in the way we relate to ourselves and other beings. It's it's the moment of choice. It's the moment of potential transformation. Without awareness of intention, it can seem that we're just acting uh, habitually, reactively, sort of out of control. Like uh, if I have a temper and certain things make me angry, it just comes up, I say the thing, I feel bad later, and keep repeating that cycle over and over. There's no freedom in that. There's no transformation in it. I feel bad later. Oh, I won't do it again. But when the next time happens without mindfulness, there's no choice. There's no sense of being able not to do it again. When there's that moment of noticing the intention, there's a moment of seeing, ah, that's not so helpful. That would lead to suffering. Maybe I won't do it. It's called uh, mindfulness wisdom, satipanya. The mindfulness that we can notice, our motivation, the wisdom that tells us this might lead to suffering for myself and others. And it can just be an intuitive sense. It doesn't have to go into words like that. Just Maybe it's not such a good idea. Maybe I'll just zipper my mouth and walk out the door before something else comes out of it. Now, as, as we've Notice that you know we gave the intention to pay attention to intention in instructions the other day, and as some people have said, you know, forget it. I haven't even noticed that. It's very subtle at times, like uh, that sense of just about to. But often, and in daily life, you might notice it more this way. Intention can manifest as thought, like what I just said. I'm going to really let that so and so have it. It's a thought, but it's it's the manifestation of an intention of anger or of vengeance or of rage. And we can use the content of those thoughts at that time to give us a clue as to what intention, because the intention actually informed that thought. If we don't notice the intention, it'll just arise again more strongly and it'll lead to speech. And an even stronger intention leads to action. So just having that moment of choice. So the practice we do here, the, the mindfulness, it might seem a little... Uh, like a sort of a mindfulness exercise, like you itch, you notice the intention, you don't lift your arm. And the next thing you know, you're scratching it. You don't know how that happened. And another time you notice the intention, 
don't lift your arm, and then you catch it, like Fred said, halfway up. That's huge. That's huge because that moment of catching is the moment of the potential for mindfulness wisdom to come in, for us to have a choice. So I hope this kind of leads to the point of why when we're faced with action, when we're faced with a difficult situation, and of course it's more complicated with difficult situations, but when we have to act, why, why is it important to be present? Because if we're not present, we might act quite easily, and it might be that the actions are effective in the uh, outer world of getting the result we think we want, but the, re- the actions might be actually increasing pain to ourselves. I might be getting in big trouble bringing this up as an example. But what if you had a toxic waste dump in your backyard and it was going to hurt your child? And there, that's a real situation. Mindfulness doesn't mean we sit and be aware of our feelings and aware of it came about due to causes. It's not personal. There's nothing to do. So what if it hurts our child? It hurts it, but that's what's happening. No, it's not just, it doesn't stop there. Mindfulness gives us the opportunity to sit, notice the whole situation, and also notice the emotions that come out of us, the intentions to act that come out of it, and we can see if there might be what seems like a very good course of action that would perhaps, maybe we would move, maybe we could go and really give hell to the people who did the toxic waste dump, maybe we can, can motivate a whole big cause to clean it up, whatever. But if we can keep paying attention also to our own emotions and intentions, we might do the same action in vastly different ways. So we could do what seems that it would affect change out of rage, panic, vengefulness. Um, we might go to the people we, that, that have the effect of building the dump and just blast them, hate them, or try to change them out of a, a really strong will. And First of all, we'd probably be met with a similar kind of energy. But even without that, acting from from such deep anger or panic or fear or whatever is really harming ourselves. It's like bringing in such a, a darkness. It's making it easier for us to act from anger, to act from hatred, to act from fear in the future. Even if it seems to get helpful results, in, in being aware of the intention, it doesn't mean we don't have to act. But sometimes we can just sit and be with the anger, be with what's happening, and give it time. And use the wisdom to see if we can find a way to consciously connect with the humanity, as much as Joseph mentioned in his talk last night, to not just act from our, our immediate reactions, but to find a way underneath, to act from more serenity, more calm, find some sense of common humanity with the people we're needing to, to, to work with and see if we can work from a different motivation. I'm not saying it's easy. And these things are in, incredibly complex. I'm not trying to say it's simple. But these moments of paying attention, if only if we're present do we have the opportunity to act from the wisdom that grows from mindfulness. And to act from a different intention transforms our lives. 
It's what purifies our conduct. It's what purifies our mind. It's what really, it's for me, and I'm only speaking for me now, one of the main um, aspirations of meditation practice to really, if I can transform myself from a person who tends to act from greed, from hatred, from delusion, to, to act with much more awareness, with a connection, with compassion, you know, that's the place I have to start before I feel like I can expect that from anybody else in the world. And we do have a choice, much more than we think. We have a choice of different intentions may arise, but when we have that awareness and the willingness to look, we do have a choice of how we act. It's quite amazing how much choice we have. Again, I'm not saying it's easy. And sometimes I'll kind of pick situations to explore that, that be really decisive, effective action without coming from, you know, the habits of rage or the habits of anger or so. Uh, Personally, I find that very difficult. A couple of years ago, I signed up for a a self-defense course for women. It's called model mugging. It's it's extremely intense. I mean, I I know I can, I'll tell you the reasons why, but when I look back now, I think, I can't believe I did that. But it's set up in five or six sessions and they're each five or six hours long deliberately so that it's really intense. It's really meant to push you to the limits of, of, of your capacity in whatever way. And it's called model mugging because they have these guys all dressed up like they're the muggers. And they have padding all over them. And you know, there's these giant helmets, padded helmets and padding all over them anywhere. Because what you're taught to do is to, you know, you're taught specific moves, kicking and gouging and all this stuff. I know, it's intense. But you have to do it. It's like learning to do it at full strength. That's why these guys are so padded, so that you actually have to pull out of yourself the energy it would require to repel an attack. Okay, now, the reason that I consciously told myself to do it, this might seem really bizarre, um, I I felt that fear of violence, I actually noticed that that would come up in situations where it was completely uncalled for, just from my conditioning as a woman. I don't even have a history of violence, and I still have this fear of violence that comes up, and I know a lot of, for a lot of women and men too, but it's very, very uh, sort of ingrained. Anyway, such a fear, I would notice that this fear would actually get in the way of my feeling connection and compassion with other people. Like walking in the city, I'd see uh, a homeless guy or something, and the fear would come up and would block my, my sense of common humanity or my willingness to go over and meet him, and I really didn't like that. I wanted to do something to change it, so, so I picked this course. So I really went into it trying to see if I could find the place of, of really acting very fully without coming from rage or fear. And uh, I'm not saying I found that, but it was a very interesting exercise. And I found out later, talking to a friend who did the same course but in another state, that the teachers I had actually weren't so skillful because they didn't emphasize that. For my friend, they really emphasized finding, you know, when the attacker would come and you know certain things you're supposed to do, but they might break out of the script. So you, it wasn't really always just scripted and you had to respond spontaneously. And in her class, they really emphasized finding the, 
not coming from terror or anger, not immediately just flailing, but really finding the still place inside that wasn't affected by that terror or anger, and just really being patient and watchful, and then responding like a coil spring. The energy comes out and you respond, but it's not hatred or anger. It's just what you need to do to defend yourself. You stop as soon as that's done. You don't like keep wailing on the guy. You stop and go call the police. That's how they teach it. My, on the other hand, you get in the circle at the first class and the teacher says, all right, let's go kick ass. I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm in the right place here. So it was an interesting experience. I don't care to repeat it. But... I don't. <laughs> I, I still think it's possible. I found once in a while because I didn't. I wouldn't really get angry because I didn't have a test. I would sometimes get afraid, and I would find that action would come out quite spontaneously. And I'm not sure I found the place of real clear, decisive action in the face of something that's clearly inappropriate and wrong without it coming from anger. I, I certainly never felt compassionate to the guys, well, I have to say that. But I still believe it's possible, you know, and finding ways in our life to, to activate that, not just assuming it's, it's too much and we can't do it. So at any rate, in any particular situation, when we're confronted with choices and decisions, learning how to tune into intention, noticing how it manifests in you, knowing that it all often won't be obvious. I mean, okay, sitting here and there's the intention to scratch an itch. That's sort of obvious. It, although we often don't even actually notice what's fueling that intention, whether it's desire, whether it's aversion, whether it's restlessness. But it's not a huge big deal. But often in life, there could be sort of it's just layers of subtlety of intention. Like, for example, at work, someone asks you to take on another responsibility even though you feel overloaded, and you agree. Do we notice what the intention is behind it? You know, it could be many things. It could be a real willingness. It could be a real dedication to the bigger picture. It could be total codependence and trying to take care of everyone else, even if you burn out in the process. It could be fear of what people would think or protecting our self-image or trying to be, you know, the perfect person in all ways. You know, it could be a lot of things. And some of those intentions won't be conscious to us at first. If we have tendencies of personality of mind that we haven't quite let come up into the light yet, you might not quite notice them. And so that's what the, the more clear mindfulness practice is about. And working with intention takes a lot of clarity, but also a lot of honesty. It's not about trying to make ourselves look good to ourselves. It's not about pretending I'm acting from compassion when I really wish this person would drop through a hole in the ground. It's about being really honest and not judging that. This is where we go back to the spaciousness of you. If I want to be compassionate, but really I hate this person's guts, it's to be really honest about that without any judgment. And in that, that's the place that we can see the painful, the unwholesome mental state, be with it, allow it, don't try to change it, but not act on it. And eventually it'll move off and something more profound can take its place. 
in our daily life, the one other aspect of intention that I want to just touch on, it's picking up on what Joseph spoke about last night. It's sort of intention in the macro aspect. You could call it, you know, our aspiration. A sense of our deepest, most heartfelt purpose in this life. And this is also spoken of as a real, a real beacon, a real guiding light. When we need to make choices, we might be aware of uh, our, our, our more immediate intention, but sometimes the intention could seem fine and we still have choices and how do we make them? Should I live in California? Should I live in Barry? Should I take this meditation course or not? Should I do this or not? Do this or that? They both seem fine. Neither one's bad. Neither one's particularly harmful. Having a really clear, heartfelt sense of what our highest aspiration is. And Joseph mentioned last night uh, the bodhicitta as an aspiration, a sense of of a real deep commitment to awaken for the benefit of all beings. That might be an aspiration that deeply motivates us as we meet situations in our life. That might not be your aspiration. It's not that there's any one aspiration that it's supposed to be. But what I found it's been deeply personal in the last few years that the the honest tuning into my highest aspiration and really bringing it consciously into awareness, clarifying it, even verbalizing it, truly acknowledging it to myself, and not just once, but when faced with decisions, has been an it's been an enormously powerful um, change of motivation and actually aspect of transformation in how I live my life, in the choices I make. It's, it's merely bringing that intention to light, that aspiration, and honoring it. That in itself can have a powerful transforming effect, even without knowing how. And uh, in my own experience and in talking with other people, um, I find often it's something we, we think we know what our aspiration is, but we haven't really been quite so conscious about it, haven't quite embraced it quite so fully, honored it really, and honored ourselves by honoring that aspiration. And another thing that people often say, and I felt myself when, I, when this first came into my consciousness, it just kind of arose from nowhere, like, oh, that's really a powerful aspiration. Who am I to think that I could live up to that? You know, just a piece of dirt or whatever. But, but the, it, it's easy for this, the one that first arose, and it might change as, as our understanding of ourselves in life changes over the years. But what first arose in my mind on a retreat was a deep sense, and it came up in words and surprised me as though, I want to serve the truth, the Dharma, in whatever way that needs to happen in my life. And I thought, oh. And a real, almost a sense of shame came over me. It was really interesting. Like, almost a shame to acknowledge that, and then all the worthlessness and all the feelings of, that's too high an aspiration for someone like you to have. Now, if anyone else would say that, that was their experience, of course, you'd say, that's silly. Of course, that's beautiful. Anyone can have whatever aspiration. But just to notice there might be this back, you know, kind of backlighting of our, of our tendencies. 
don't let it get in the way. Really bringing this aspiration up and then using it as a conscious reference point when confronted with confusing or difficult decisions, I found um, it's been amazing, really fascinating, and, and powerful in a way that I don't understand, sort of beyond reasoning, that the honoring, the acknowledging of the intention, the aspiration itself, seemed to begin to change things without my consciously trying to do anything. So I just, it's a personal example again, but soon after that, it came, I acknowledged it, I had no idea what that meant or what I should do, and I didn't try to figure it out or change anything. I just, I was working as a manager then at the, at our retreat center, IMS in Barry. I must have been 83, 84, I don't know. And um, <clears throat> fine, I just went back to my work, and which I also felt was serving the Dharma, letting, helping this retreat center run. Sometime later, maybe only a couple of months, uh, I had no sense of wanting to teach at all. It's not sort of, it's harder than not teaching, let's put it that way. <laughs> and so a couple of months after that, there was a weekend retreat happening in Vancouver, the other side of the country, that the teacher who was going to teach got really sick and couldn't do it. Everyone else was busy. And a couple of other teachers, good friends of mine, decided I should do it, which I thought was not a good idea in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. And I said no. And these people, and one of them was Sharon, actually, um, she's not usually pushy. And she's usually, okay, you don't want to do it, fine. But she wouldn't stop. She wouldn't let up. She kept, you know, pushing and, I'll, you know, talking to me and telling me what to do. And another friend would call me up from California, like 45 minutes a day, trying to talk me into it. So they, they wouldn't let me, and I keep saying, no, no, no. And then finally, it kind of arose in my mind, didn't you just acknowledge this aspiration a couple of months ago and that it didn't matter what form it took, you were just willing to do whatever was needed? And it was kind of like, it was kind of like Fred this morning. It was kind of like, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that, oh yeah. And as soon as that came into my awareness, there was no choice anymore. It was obvious. It's not that it makes the doing of it easier. Often, often when I'm, I'm aware of really feeling in tune with my highest aspiration, it's sometimes the harder choice. But the attitude with which you meet the choice is totally different. So I was, I was like a basket case going to do this retreat. It didn't make it all calm and easy. I remember hoping the car would crash on the way to the airport. <laughs> but only I would get hurt, not the guy driving, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But the attitude is really okay. This is my practice, the fear, the pain, the self-image, all this stuff. This is my practice to be with, and whatever comes up, it's whatever, whatever needs to happen. If somehow this is going to, to serve the truth and also help me awaken to freedom, then it's what has to happen. And it, it gives such a, a resolution, uh, a strength of purpose and resolution and clarity to go through whatever little little blips, you know, life happens to send to us. And so that's just my little personal example, but 
what I found is it's not like that just happened once, but that a, a continual uh, reconnecting with in a really heartfelt way uh, of, of, of what my aspiration is, really reaffirming, reconnecting. It's not just a thought, but a, a whole experiential dropping into what is really true, what is really most profound for me, and not being afraid of that. And it's, it's okay if it changes, too. I thought it does you know, shift over the years, but it's a, it's a wonderful reference point for resolution, and it gives such a conviction and a strength to do things we would never have thought possible without that it was in service of uh, an aspiration or a truth that is much greater than ourselves. It takes us out of a personal self-referencing. It takes us out of the comfort zone, for sure. One of my little sayings I say when I find myself in this choice again is, oh, do I want to be comfortable or do I want to be free? And as soon as that comes up, oh, yeah. So that's just something that's been really helpful to me. <clears throat> And again, working with intention, whether it's in the service of high, our highest aspiration, or even just wanting to be as wholesome as possible in our day-to-day life when it doesn't you know, seem to have a big effect, it's important, again, to have the spaciousness to know that we're not going to always be totally right on with either wholesome intentions or totally right on target with, with everything we do is in service of our higher aspiration. And I, I just want to share that because I spent years beating myself up every time I did something I didn't consider dharmic. You know, if I watched some stupid show on TV for half an hour, I'd go, oh, half an hour, I should have been meditating, I should have been reading the dharma, I should have just, you know, been helping beings or something. Instead, I, I watched, you know, MASH for the 55th time. You know? <laughs> it was really, it was a lot of suffering because I'd, I'd quite, I sort of do more of the thing I was reading. It's just like here, when you, when you hate something that's happening in your mind, it keeps coming back. So I'd watch more TV because I hated the way I was feeling about watching TV. It <laughs> makes a lot of sense. I'd have some spaciousness, have some kindness with yourselves and know that we're going to deviate. It's okay. Partly because there's not always awareness of our intentions, partly because the intentions are so complex like the example I gave of taking on, on more stuff at work. I used to uh, have the intention when I'd go home to visit my parents. Um, we have a quite a good relationship. I'm really going home to really be there for them, to really spend time together. Consciously, that was my intention. That's really in line with my highest aspiration. And I'd get there, and within two nights, I'm off by myself at night. I'm reading, I'm watching videos, I'm doing whatever. We are, they're in the other room doing crossword puzzles. We're hardly speaking. And it's not angry, we're just separate. And then I, I really I did this for years. I'd go to bed, and as I'd go to bed, I'd just be filled with self-recrimination for about 20 minutes, and then I'd go to bed, you know, you're selfish, or the jerk, you come down to be with them, they want to always be here. Then I'd go to bed. Then I'd wake up, and the next day would be just the same, you know, and then I'd go to bed, filled with self-recrimination. I couldn't, you know, something wasn't matching. And it's partly when we have an aspiration, and we're trying to force our outer activity to match it, but there's not really either a deep seeing of what's going on in us or an acceptance of it. So when I finally quit hating myself and just paid attention when I was watching the video or paid attention when I was reading or when I decided to get up the room with my parents and leave, first I could see 
that partly I was coming down exhausted, really been around people continually, and I needed some space of peace and quiet, which actually my family gives me. That they, they, they were fine that I needed that. They were offering me a gift, you know, and so uh, let me begin to take that gift more and not hate myself. And then when there wasn't that tension, I found just quite naturally I would turn off the, t- the video or the book and go in and sit down and chat. Because there wasn't that tension, I accepted my other intentions, and then we finally begin to harmonize much more organically with what we hold as our as our highest aspirations. It really is the sense of spaciousness, bringing it all up into the light, not just trying to meet some ideal we've made up. That'll never work. We've got to kind of include all of ourselves, and then we can harmonize much more naturally. <coughs> And to be willing also to harmonize naturally, but to be willing to bring some consciousness into that. So I just want to share from someone who inspires me a lot. It's her, her name is Sister Fong, or Sister Chan Kong. She's uh, the woman who works with Thich Nhat Hanh, who was mentioned before, the Vietnamese Zen master. She um, has been working with him since the 60s in Vietnam, so she's also very active in the Vietnam War. Um, just trying to help people who were suffering from the war, not taking sides, watching friends get killed, herself being thrown in jail, um, just seeing more pain and suffering than I could ever imagine. And that was only in the 60s. And she's been act- she's also kicked out of Vietnam, couldn't go back because she'd probably be thrown in jail. But com- completely devoted to uh, a life of freedom and compassion through her practice, but also one of activism, of helping those who are suffering and are really being actively engaged in working with Vietnamese refugees, working with people in prison in Vietnam. And having met her, I can say she's one of the most dynamic, energetic people I know. You know, just in the time I could think, wouldn't it be nice to blah, 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 she would have done 15 things. And no kind of hierarchy, you know, she'll either spray out somebody's cabin that has spiders or be packing boxes of medicine to send to Vietnam, you know, or be, be uh, collecting money for Vietnamese orphans, whatever, or getting up and giving a Dharma talk. But anyway, after all these years of, of deep commitment to her understanding and also to activism, it still doesn't come automatically that faced with a difficult situation, she naturally responds with compassion. So what inspires me is her patience and her commitment to work with this consciously. This is a this is a little paragraph from her autobiography. She's talking. This is more present day, where she's working with when she hears news of arrests in Vietnam of monks and of artists and nuns, people being thrown in jail. She tries to uh, go through whatever channel she might have access to any figure in power there to see if she can get them out of jail. <coughs> Every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry, and I knew that I had to do walking meditation. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to regain my calm. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted in arresting such a lovely monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm, and people found it easier to cooperate. 
And it just goes on some of the changes she'd managed to affect. So it's not easy, it's not simple. But if we can have a commitment to what's truly important for each one of us, that can bring the resolution and the patience to to truly act in as appropriate and wholesome a way as possible. Ways we might not think we could, just from kind of sitting casually where we are. So that's working with intention. And the second aspect of this broadening, broadening the field of mindfulness, broadening the field of awareness, and this is more of a, a really a sense of spatial broadening. It's called classically, um, it's really working with skillful means. It's a sort of clear comprehension of suitability of what's appropriate in any situation. It's really skillful means. What it means is uh, when we're taking a decision, choosing an action, not only looking at our own intention and its wholesomeness, but that we have to locate ourselves and the, and the situation in the context of the whole situation. So it's really broadening mindfulness from the microscopic how does the sensations feel when I lift my foot, to being aware that we are part of a whole situation, we can't really take ourselves separately. Sometimes on a meditation retreat such as this, where we're really learning to develop the focus, we sometimes lose sight of this aspect of clear comprehension of the whole situation. So when you find... Uh, people moving incredibly slowly through the doorway and there's 40 people behind them. And we run into this in the three-month course a lot. Someone's just going so slow and they're in the food line, you know, and it's just, yeah, you just want to wake up, you know. This is not where our practice is leading us. So... Tuning into the whole situation and seeing that what's appropriate, totally appropriate in one situation could be really not so appropriate at all in another situation. And so we have to bring in a real flexibility, a real adaptability. And again, this brings in wisdom. It brings in mindfulness, wisdom, satipanya. Mindfulness to notice what we're doing <laughs> and the wisdom to see what's appropriate in the, in the broader situation. Aspects that this highlights, the wisdom of impermanence, that what's appropriate in one situation is going to be different in another situation. So, for example, what we played with on retreat here in talking about balanced effort. At one point, your effort, the energy might be balanced and calm. It's in the morning, and there's something difficult going on, and you can just sit and go right into it, and there's a calmness, and you're present, and it's fine might not be great, but it's fine. You can be with it. Later in the afternoon, it seems that the same painful experience is arising. You try to do the same thing, but forget to notice that the internal conditions are totally different. The energy is really low. There's a kind of restless, distracted mind. Aversion is coming up very easily. And instead of noticing that things are impermanent, Everything's a result of cause and effect, and the situation is different now from in the morning, and it calls for a different response. And both of those could have been done with a really clear, wholesome intention. But if we don't see the bigger picture, 
our wholesome intention is going to be misguided because there's not the wisdom of seeing what's appropriate. So that's a lot of what we sort of are trying to bring out in working with skillful means in meditation. Of course, it's exactly the same in our life. Seeing impermanence, seeing how we're affected by so many different causes. One that's really interesting to me, I've noticed it a lot on retreat, is the weather. Not just the obvious, it's cold and I don't like it, or it's hot and I like it or don't like it, but very often when there's a shift in weather patterns on a retreat, like the barometer goes, is it down when like a storm's coming? The barometer goes down and there's a kind of build-up or something. And it affects people's mental states. You just see in person after person over a day or so of that, there starts to be this kind of uh, anxiety, a kind of pressure building up. And it's so rare that someone actually doesn't take it completely personally. You know, we're finding a story and you say, well, you know, it could just be the weather. The weather? Are you telling me that I'm all upset and I have this fear and I have this anxiety because of the weather? No, you know, we're like so easy to think of ourselves as isolated and not really look at the whole picture. So when it was cold here the first couple of days, when I'm cold now, I really notice that the kind of, it feels as if the cellular structure of my body changes. I'm sure that's not so, but there's a tightness there's a resistance, a much more aversive, new experiences are not met with an open heart. And as soon as the sun comes out and it's warm, ah, everything's wonderful, whatever comes up, I'm really ready to be with. I can't really take credit for either one of those, you know, it's just a cause and effect response. Once I was on a retreat, on an Upandita retreat, Upandita retreats give really good stories because they're so intense. And you really notice any variation. And um, it was about a month in, and, and one of the ways of practice there is to move very, very slowly, like that person in the food line, and noting every, every sensation, every emotion, you're just really there. So it was about a month in, and I was doing walking meditation in my, in my hallway, very slow. And it's in Barry in the summer, it was very humid, and it was building up to a thunderstorm, so I don't, know, I don't know if they have the same here, where the humidity's hanging in the air so heavily, I felt like I was walking through molasses. I could hardly lift my foot. Just, ah. Uh. And every, the, the insects, the birds are really still. There's just this pregnancy, this heaviness. You can hardly move. And just silence throughout the building. And then the thunderstorm let loose, one of these all at once, just a torrent of rain, from heaviness to total rain in one second. And as so much energy was released, I felt like dancing down the hall. And I would have thought it was just me, except that right at that moment that I felt that change, it's a hallway with a door on either end, at each end the door just flew open, slammed open, and two different yogis, who both the last I'd seen them had been moving as slowly as I, came running down both sides of the hall. I don't know what they were doing. They kind of tore through the hall and out the other door. <laughs> what? What's going on? And it was, it was so clear. I said, ah, none of this is personal. You know, we're affected by so many different conditions. And just to begin to expand our view of cause and effect, of interrelatedness of situation, to see that. And then we can uh, make our choices, our decisions, a little more intentionally based on what's going on. So, in speech, which is a huge area of mindfulness, 
wise speech and finding the intention before we speak. I mean, that, I find that really tricky. But just in a bigger situation, the Buddha gave the guideline for wise speech of saying what is true and what is useful. So that what is useful is tuning into the clear comprehension. And also, I would add, finding the appropriate time. So I've learned if I want to have a real heart-to-heart relationship talk or do some processing, 11 o'clock at night is really not a good time to initiate that particular occurrence. And I learned this years ago, unfortunately, from many experiences. I mean, sometimes we're dense and it takes a long time. But really seeing what's appropriate or when to... um, say something to someone when they're receptive enough to hear it and not when I think they should hear it. And then again, looking at what's my intention. Is it coming from a sense of wanting to be useful? Or is it coming from some subtle sense of wanting to get even or wanting to prove I'm right or so? Just really looking at all of that. Taking in the wider circumstances doesn't deny using our really skillful mindfulness to come into experience and intention but it means for sure remembering to widen. Not like a friend of mine who was uh, having acupuncture, and you know, and they burn moxa on you, and you burn it down. The way this guy does it, you burn it down until you just feel it burning, and then you say, and he takes it off, so it doesn't really burn you. So my friend was lying there, noting to himself, burning, 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 but forgot to say anything. And so he, he really burned himself quite badly because he forgot to just say anything. That sort of... That's mindfulness without clear comprehension. That's not not what we want to do. Clear comprehension of the bigger situation, our interdependence, our interrelatedness, the fact that all the conditions change. Now you'll notice that now on retreat, as we're coming to the last day of practice, I wonder if there's anyone who hasn't noticed a shift in the content of your thoughts, in the kinds of emotions that come up, in the way you relate to each other, to particular experience. It's just, I've never known a retreat where that didn't happen. I think it must be almost impossible because the conditions are slightly changing. You know, it's not that you're losing your practice, just the conditions are changing. And then we catch it from each other. And so then just the last area I want to mention, and this skillful means brings it to us, is one that people mostly think to ask about. It's called the domain of meditation, but it really means how do we make the meditation our life? Or how do we make our life our practice? If you think of meditation not in just the sitting and walking formally here, but meditation as the attitude of investigation and the attitude of willingness to be present, how can we bring that more fully into our life? So the two things I've been saying before are a lot to do with this. Widening the scope and looking at intention. Thich Nhat Hanh says, he said once that we have walls in our mind which separate our practice time from our non-practice time. And when we're practicing, we practice intensively. When we're not practice, we practice not practicing intensively. So the trick is how to break down those walls, which are self-created. And it's really an attitude. So in my mind, the question I ask is, what, what am I considering is somehow outside of my practice. What somehow is either too difficult to pay attention to or too familiar to pay attention to or too boring? What part of my life somehow do I let just run on on habit? 
And really question this with yourselves. Now, when you go home, really see, is it taking a shower in the morning? Is it all day at work? Is it when we get in a really difficult situation and if I were to pay attention, I'd have to really acknowledge my anger and I'd rather just spit it out? And I see that a lot being with friends who practice and who can really sort of call you <laughs> on stuff when, when you're starting to get really identified. So say if I'm really getting identified with a point of view and anger starting to come up and that person can say, hmm, why don't you try being mindful of anger? I can tell if it's at that moment outside of what I want to consider practice by whether I want to strangle them <laughs> or whether I'm willing to kind of, you know, come back. And that's a skillful means. Sometimes that's the worst thing you could say to somebody when they're really caught up. Is, Don't you think you could be mindful of that? <laughs> Find a more skillful way. <laughs> but, but help them, because that's what Sangha is about, helping each other to wake up, not just uh, colluding in our falling asleep and our unwholesome things that we do to ourselves. That's, that's not helping us and it's not helping them. But anyway, our challenge is, where are we falling asleep? Where do we not think it's worthwhile to pay attention? And again, it doesn't mean that we can only pay attention if we're really concentrated, if the mindfulness has this sparkly, precise, microscopic quality, because a lot of times it won't. But the trick to waking up, it doesn't take time, and it doesn't take having all these clear qualities of mind. It, it simply takes remembering. Sometimes this has been called the practice of remembrance. Because all we have to do is remember, oh yeah, turn my attention around and come back to see what's going on with me. <coughs> so if I'm sitting in a meeting, for example, paying attention to what's being said, so I'm feeling attentive, and suddenly, if I just have a kind of a generalized sense of being tuned into the whole situation, which includes me, the whole situation isn't everybody else, and I'm kind of, you know, shut out of it. The whole situation includes me. And I could be very attentive. I'll notice, even though I'm not microscopically aware, if a feeling of anxiety or a sense of anger or somehow I just freeze or tighten up, I'll notice that that's happening. And so it's just the remembering doesn't take time. It just takes that willingness to turn my attention in and feel that rather than acting blindly from it. Just feel the anger. Notice it. Feel it in the body. Maybe that means I don't say anything for a minute and let other people talk. But even that can give enough space around it that I can then say something or do what I need to do with a little more space. Maybe it's almost as if here's the anger and I sort of step over here and then act from it. That's how it feels to me. It's not denying it, but it's giving us again the space of choice. So using when you notice something's clutching or grasping in your experience rather than resisting it, use it as a wake-up call. Turn the attention around. Pay attention. Be present. You can find all kinds of skillful means how to wake up. Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about a mindfulness bell. They'll ring the bell every hour. You stop and breathe three times. Just come out of the craziness and be present. You can use the telephone. You can use a clock that rings. You can use a beeper watch. You can use ambulance sirens. And you can find all kinds of ways to remind ourselves how to wake up, how to just pay attention. It isn't difficult. It's just the willingness, the commitment. Sitting every day can, give a, can really set a tone. It's not that the sitting is going to be so fantastic necessarily, but it makes it easier to remember, to come back. And whatever we're doing, we can simply feel the breath. 
in the middle of the tenth phone call and getting more and more frantic. Just stop. Feel your hand on the phone. Take three breaths. Ah, you're present. That can make a huge difference. You can do that many times in a day. It doesn't get in the way of the day. And it, it totally changes how we relate. We begin to find the awareness of presence in our life easily expanding outward. You can do it with children. Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about this. Just having the place that you sit or go with the kids as a kind of a so-called breathing room. When you're upset or you and your spouse are upset, you say, okay, I'm going to go to the breathing room before you have a fight and go sit and be with the breath and just be with it and calm down a little bit. And then when the kids see that, when the kids upset, you go with them and just maybe three breaths, you know, but just to, to gently include your whole family, to include all aspects of life in a very gentle way in, in how you wake up. So, yeah, the only, the last thing I'll say then, because there's many, many, I could go on about this for hours, so I'll just end here. But there's many ways you can find to use situations to wake up. Seeing the difficult situations rather than being a curse, if we can meet them with interest, if we can meet a difficult situation as a way to learn how to shift from habitual patterns of response to a, a more connected, compassionate level. It, it changes the whole attitude. It makes it sort of interesting. And this willingness to make every aspect of our life equally important as practice, it might sound a little daunting, but my experience is it's not mindfulness for the sake of mindfulness, just to somehow say I could be totally mindful in a day. It's much more about, for me, it imbues all the activities of life with, with quite a depth of meaning that rather than just doing the mundane things to get on to something important, even the mundane activities, even washing the dishes, in this moment, this is the vehicle for, for really awakening, for being fully present. Even if my aspiration is to awaken to serve all beings, well, doing the dishes in this moment might be the most profound expression of that, depending how I relate, so that our, our deepest aspiration can manifest in as many different ways as there are people. I'm not trying to find some way that looks right. And, and using this sense of making our life our practice, even brushing our teeth, it doesn't matter what, I find it, it imbues all of life with a really profound meaning. And it doesn't mean becoming a contemplative, but it means entering life much more fully. I just want to end with this little... <coughs> Statement. This is by a Sufi person that I had never heard of before. He doesn't say, oh, from about a thousand years, about a thousand. The true woman or man of God sits in the midst of her fellow men and rises and eats and sleeps and marries and buys and sells and gives and takes in the bazaars and spends the days with other people and yet never forgets God even for a single moment. There doesn't have to be a sense of separation about the two. Whatever we do can be a a gift to all beings. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.